This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. You're joined today by myself, Sam, and Omar Ali, Managing Partner of UK Financial Services at EY. Welcome, Omar. Thank you, Sam. Omar, you and I have spent a fair amount of time together in the past, often bumping into each other at industry events and on various working groups. I've always thoroughly enjoyed getting your insight, stealing some of your insight, and today really is about sharing that with our listeners But perhaps we could start at the very beginning. You've been at EY for approximately 18 years and you started your career at NatWest. I believe there was an entrepreneurial stint in the middle and you sit on a few boards and not-for-profits and charities. Can you perhaps give us the chronology of what you've been up to? Of course. And you've got an amazing style, Sam, at getting people to do your podcasts. And you say we keep bumping into each other. I'd put it down to you stalking folks to get them to come onto your podcast. But I am here now and delighted to be doing this. Yeah, a very brief history, if I may. So I started my career in banking with NatWest when I joined their graduate program and joined their strategy function. I had two great years there and loved it. Learned whatever I could in that period about various elements of the banking industry. And then I left to set up, I guess, what they were calling those days a dot-com, which I set up in the late 90s and focused on the payment and lifestyle space. I guess to make it fashionable, it may be called a fintech now, but it was definitely called a dot-com in those days. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? This sounds intriguing. I set it up with two friends from university. It was an idea born, as all good ideas are, in a pub and on the back of a napkin. And we took it from a very, very nascent idea to a fully-fledged business through various rounds of funding launched it we were generating revenues had a team and the concept in those days felt revolutionary looking back now it feels very simple where we created an e-wallet to allow people to make payments online and then put a content layer across the top of it which was based on female lifestyle so fashion music beauty so we had three male partners founders of the business focused on the female lifestyle business because that is where we had thought that the money online would be spent. And I think we were proven right, regrettably, as with all things in life, the timing was off. And whilst the business was doing well, we was generating revenue, regrettably, not enough to cover our costs. And at that time, all of the venture capitalists that had backed us kept saying, you know, don't worry about it, get people to come to the site, get people using it. And uh, we will monetize at some point later on and we'll fund you through it. And then regrettably, we hit the post 9-11 downturn, venture capital market totally dried up and uh, shame upon shame, we had to wind the business down and sell off whatever bits we could, which we did. And the business that was The Rumour, which was the name of our business, we sold off various bits to a startup that was backed by Vodafone and then other parts were then put into wind down. It was an amazing time, actually. We were all three of us were very young at the time. Our experience of running a business was non-existent, but the opportunities that it gave us, and I look back at that time very fondly from the idea of taking something that was just written on a piece of paper to seeing it actually realized to then worrying about 
having enough money to pay for the lights still to be on in the building and making sure that staff were paid for. These are lessons that I've taken since then. And with all of this stuff and looking at the entrepreneurial nature that exists across financial services now, never would I have thought at that point that what we now have and people now have the ability to do to set up businesses much more easily than we did back in the late 90s is something that we should all be as a country really proud of. I'm thinking back to a conversation I once had in a pub about starting a business. I think the quality of that idea often depends on whether you had the idea at the start of the night or the end of the night. Exactly. I can tell you now that my idea definitely wasn't an e-wallet in the 90s. That was way too forward-thinking for me. Before we tuck into the EY stuff, I do want to just touch on that a little bit. Our listeners Mm. are a relatively broad mix of executives to entrepreneurs, policymakers to investors. But for those with the entrepreneurial mindset out there... What were the lessons you took, and you alluded to some of them, but what were some of the lessons you took from the entrepreneurial experience over to EY, and how has that shaped your career? Because I'm relatively early on in my career, but there are those scars that inevitably really shape the way you make decisions and want to lead your life and build your career. Yeah. A podcast definitely doesn't show your youthfulness, Sam, but yeah. (laughs) Look, I joined EY in 2001 after winding rumour down. I genuinely thought I would be at EY for no longer than a year. I took the advice from my father as I was coming out of the rumour. He said, you know, you're still young, you're still early on, go earn your stripes. And then if you want to come back into the entrepreneurial world, you can do that. And I took his advice with the view that I would have been there a year, but I've loved it. And I've stayed now 18 years and I've thoroughly, thoroughly loved my time there. But as you say, the lessons that I took from running my own business stay long with me. Mm. And I I summarize it as three R's, risk, resilience, and re-energizing. And being an entrepreneur, obviously, there's lots of characteristics, but being able to take a risk is clearly a key part of that. What I've learned over the last 18 years at EY is that those risks can't be unchecked. Those risks have to be within a certain tolerance and doing things in the right way. Mm. Lots of people can go out and do lots of things, but if it's not right ethically, not right reputationally, doesn't add anything back to society, then I'm not sure that is the right way forward. So risk-taking, but risk-taking with enough parameters around it. And I've been fortunate at EY that I've been allowed to do that. So maybe the second R, Sam, of resilience, and it's a topic that's talked about a lot, And in fact, the week that we are recording this podcast is Mental Health Week and the topic of resilience comes up a lot. We hear from lots of the research that is done that one in four of us will suffer at some point in our life some mental health issues. And we're learning much more about how we can help people deal with that. Now, for me, the topic of resilience is a very personal one because actually losing the rumor had a very profound impact on me at the time. But having the courage, which a lot of entrepreneurs and listeners to your podcast will have, the ability to sort of bounce back from that Mm. and go again is really important. How that happens, you know, for me, I relied a lot on family and friends to pick me back up. And I'm very grateful for that. Lots of people find lots of different mechanisms to get themselves back on their feet. But then the key part is my third R, and that is re-energizing, because what is required more and more of leaders is to recognize those challenges in themselves, but also in their own teams and finding something within themselves to pick Mm -hmm. themselves and their teams up again. 
be that from small setbacks to bigger setbacks like losing a business or any you know things outside of the professional and into the personal there are lots of lessons that I've taken but if I was asked I would do it all over again I think no doubt when we've had my staff at EY wanting to go off and do things for themselves as long as their motivations are the right ones I've always encouraged it I love the three R's and then at the end no regret probably the 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 fourth fourth R One of the topics you mentioned was mental health. Mm -hmm. And in the world we live in, if you think about on your mobile phone, how many different mediums you've got for someone to get in contact with you, it's so overwhelming. You leave your phone for an hour and you look at it and you have hundreds of notifications, emails coming through from 6 a.m. to to 10 p.m. The world we live in is getting faster and faster and faster. Communication, connectivity, soon to be 5G infrastructure, it's only making it worse. John Thompson on a podcast said the world is never going to be this slow again and that has a huge impact on mental health particularly in the kids of today children today who come home with their mobile phone don't leave the playground they don't leave the peer pressure they have 30 40 50 different mediums for people to get in contact people to put pressure on them how do you think we can best support the people of the future the children of today around mental health and how can technology help that sometimes i pine for my youth but other times when you describe what kids go through now Blimey, I'm delighted I'm not going through uh, teenage years again. So part of it is how do we take the good from technology? That is a big question and one where theses have been written and more qualified people than me will talk about. I can only talk about it from a personal standpoint. So I have a 10-year-old daughter and a 1-year-old son. And for my 10-year-old daughter, who is more tech savvy than I am, there are some clear boundaries. So she won't have any of her devices in her room after a certain time. She won't be allowed her devices at the dinner table. So there are clear sort of guidelines and parameters around usage. Increasingly, a lot of the schools are being much more attuned to how children are using social media and interacting. And I think that is helpful. And in addition to which, we have to find a way of getting school children to feel and the kids to feel more comfortable in the use of technology in the right way. So not only the use of technology, but also how they themselves can aspire to careers in technology. So mm-hmm. one of the things mm-hmm. you and I have been involved with, a fantastic initiative launched by Innovate Finance over the last few months around fintech for schools. Mm which I think is a fabulous initiative to encourage kids who may not think about careers in fintech or even know what fintech is to get a bit more of an understanding of it. And what we're starting to do is then build awareness, understanding, and then also hopefully inspire some children to go into fields that they may not have thought about going into previously. Going back to your point around mental health, this, I think, is an issue that clearly has been there for ever in the day, but one that I feel the sign of progress is the fact that we are sat here today talking about it. Mm -hmm. The other sign for me is across the diversity and inclusiveness agenda, neurodiversity is now also being talked about. They're not exactly the same thing, but I think they go hand in hand where businesses like EY are learning to be more understanding, more accommodating of people from all kinds of backgrounds, irrespective of race, irrespective of gender, irrespective of sexual preference, irrespective of how people learn and think, with a view to saying, actually, you can all be successful at EY, irrespective of all of those differences. 
And actually those differences are to be commended and nurtured. And a lot of that comes down to good, sound business reasons, as well as doing good for society. Clearly, being more open to people from all backgrounds is good for society. Getting more people engaged in doing meaningful work is good for society. But also on an EY basis, it's good for us. There was some research that we did a few years ago. We looked at something like over 22,000 different client engagements that we had done. And the research was absolutely clear. We looked at correlations between teams that were more mixed in terms of the types of people they had working on it, gender, race, where declared sexual preference. And we looked at the outputs and the outputs included being re-engaged for more work, the quality of the outputs. And guess what? The correlation between the more diverse the team and the better the outcome for our clients and for our staff it was irrefutable. So not only is it a good thing to do, it is the right thing to do for mm-hmm. businesses. Mm-hmm. And we remain massively focused on it. What is increasingly becoming important is making sure that as we continue to move down this agenda, we allow people to bring as much of themselves to work. And I think by being able to do that, some of the mental health issues that we are talking about, when people feel freer to be themselves, is one way of dealing with some of the tougher bits that we've just talked about. I'm in total agreement, and I really like that phrase, use the diversity of differences. I hope my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because she's going to tell me off. The alley house rules of no electronic gadgets in the room is something she subscribes to and I don't yet. Don't so, yeah. And to be doing that early on in your married life, Sam. I was trying to set the right precedence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can only improve. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said my wife would slap me. I, yeah, she yeah. doesn't do that, I promise. <laughs> right, over to EY. And I don't want to dwell on corporate life too much because I think there's a huge amount that we could cover in this podcast. But... Could you tell us a little bit about your specific role at EY? You're the UK managing partner for financial services. That's a huge role with a ton of stuff going on. Could you explain the sort of organizational structure, what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So if I take two lenses, one externally and then internally. So from an external standpoint, very simply, the way I look at my role is anything we do with any financial services company that operates in the UK, runs through our UK financial services business, which I am responsible for. Internally, what that means is I am responsible for 220 partners and four and a half thousand staff. We operate slightly differently to some of our peers in that our financial services business runs on a global basis and then breaks into three constituent geographical parts, the Americas, EMEA and Asia Pacific. And within that, we obviously have our subsectors, which are banking, capital markets, insurance and wealth and asset management. And then we have our four key service areas. So assurance, which includes audit, yeah. tax, transactions, and then advisory, which includes things that we do from performance improvement, risk and regulatory, through to our technology consulting businesses and people advisory. So what we do for HR functions and the like. And then obviously we bring that together under one roof. And for us, that comes together a UK country level, which is what I am responsible for. And we kind of took the view many years ago that financial services is different. Financial services requires a level of specialism and people to want to be in that sector and want to live and breathe it. So anything we do with a financial services bias comes through our organizational construct, which we call global financial services. It's important to us. We feel that it means that when you deal with 
EY's financial services, you will deal with financial services experts. And in the world that we live in, where it is, as you say, moving faster and faster and regulation continues to be big themes alongside technology, having people with the expertise that comes from working across the FS sector is hugely important. So my role, I see very simply as representing all of the magnificent work that we do across the financial services sector in the UK, ensuring we join it up in the right way. Thank you. Despite having done a fair amount of work between Motive Partners and EY, it's really reassuring to actually hear that because I guess having experts in global affairs is critical, particularly with a global function, when financial services, it's not trivial and it is systemic. 2008 taught us that. And I think the more that technology infuses with our sector, the more complex it gets. How do you find that talent? So when you have a new wave of horizontal technologies, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. data strategies, mm-hmm. the cloud economy. How do you upskill your staff or hire that talent in? We took the view years ago that financial services is one of the few sectors that does operate globally. And as a consequence, our structure reflected our clients. And this is what we try to do. We try to reflect our client base and we try to reflect where the market is heading. Where you get to now is back to the theme of speed, you get to this place that says, how do you ensure that you keep pace? And to my mind, and I say this to a lot of our clients as well, structural change can't be the only way to make that happen. So then it comes down to the people that you have and their behaviors. How do you find those people and Mm -hmm. how do you instill those right behaviors is the challenge of today and tomorrow. What is absolutely clear in financial services and fintech right now, the single biggest challenge whenever you talk to any fintechs, whenever you talk to any big companies, is finding the right talent. That is the single biggest issue. 100%. There's um, research that was produced by the World Economic Forum, which looked at the proportion of new roles within financial services. So data scientists, AI, engineers, creatives, I could go on. And their estimate was that as of today, something in the order of 15% of all financial services jobs are in those fields. Now, many of these roles, you go back five years, didn't even exist. So that's scary. Yeah. What's even more scary is the World Economic Forum predict by 2022, these roles will comprise a third of all financial services jobs. So you just unpack that Here and now, we live in a world where it is hard to find these skills already. And to say in three years' time, we're going to need to find double the number that we are at now. Now, for a lot of your listeners, that is encouraging because it gives them more and more opportunities. For me as an employer, I'm excited about that, but I'm also pretty nervous because Mm -hmm. of where do we find the right skills. The Chancellor announced last year the creation of a skills commission which is being led by Mark Hoban, and I sit on it. And that is designed to try and address some of these very knotty issues. And we, back from 2015 onwards, we've been producing, working alongside Treasury and Innovate Finance, the FinTech Census. Mm. Why do we do that? We do that because the world is moving so quickly to try and get a grip on how FinTech is evolving, how the sector is evolving in the UK, what's working, what's not working, how big is it, where are the gaps? What are fintechs asking for? So we took a view that it'd be good to take a pulse check every so often. So we're just completing the 2019 fintech 
census. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to launch that over the next few months. Mm-hmm. And whilst I can't share all of the findings because we're still going through them, what I can share is some of the headlines that have come out of it. Headline number one is the appetite for growth amongst fintechs remains huge. The vast majority feel that they will be doubling revenues over the next year, which is really encouraging. But when you then turn to asking them what they see as their biggest blockers to doing that, guess what? It's skills and talent. Yeah, That was the same that came out in our 2017 census. It was the same that came out in the one before. So the ability to access these skills is clearly an issue as well as the skills in of themselves being there. And for fintechs, some of these issues are perhaps more real than for some of the bigger companies. You know, for example, at EY, we have such huge reach amongst universities and colleges and schools that some of that stuff is perhaps less open to some of the fintechs. Mm -hmm. So you've got a number of issues right across the talent value chain that play out and play out in particular for fintechs. So number one around awareness. Mm. So with a large number of fintechs in scale-up mode, if you don't really understand the space and you don't really understand the sector, how will you create any awareness about getting roles and jobs in it? The second then is, of course, making sure that you are able to get the best talent that is out there attracted to the sector and the sector as a whole has to come together to punch above its weight. So Innovate Finance recently launched their jobs portal. Yes, It's good because it allows the whole thing to come together and then fintechs can talk kind of as one as opposed to them going out individually. But the bigger issue for me right now is the vast number of people who currently work in financial services and ensuring that they are reskilled. So how do we do that? If you look at the City UK's recent research, I think it suggests something like 2.3 million people work in financial and related services in the UK. If you fast forward five years and use the World Economic Forum as a proxy, a large number of those roles will not exist in the way in which they exist now. So what is it that we are doing as employers and what are we doing collectively as society to ensure that those people who are working in telephony centres, in branches, in middle and back offices are reskilled. How do we ensure that they can then have the skills that are necessary to continue to make meaningful contributions to society? That for me is a bigger challenge than just finding talent coming out of universities because we still produce massive amount of STEM graduates. Vast number of maths graduates arrive back into the city every year. So I'm not necessarily sure that that is in of itself the issue how we reskill those that are currently working in financial services to ensure that they can do a lot of the newer jobs is important. We've got lots of initiatives at EY that we're doing to ensure my colleagues continue to have the skills that are necessary for what our clients will be demanding in the future. You're spot on with the STEM piece. It needs, in my mind, my humble opinion, it needs to be much more vocational. And we spoke about it yesterday, actually, at the Lord Mayor's Digital Working Group that we sit on together, the plus alliance between the University of Arizona and New South Wales and Sydney and King's College London, who identified the requirement to have an influx of engineers. In the UK, we're 20,000 engineers in the deficit each year, which is obviously being compounded. And there's zero diversity. Less than 11% are women. It's shocking. 
So how do we create the right environment to gear us up for the future, both at the vocational level at the start of the career and then the reskilling piece as well? Your discussion on HM Treasury fintech centres gives us a nice segue into the UK. So we've done a bit of work together, you far more than me, but on the UK's fintech agenda. Why is the UK such an impressive and growing financial technology hub? If you could just talk us through why you think the UK is so good and what you think we could perhaps do better and how to prepare for the future. Wow, that's a big question. Let me take it step by step. It would be massively disappointing if the UK had not been the leader in fintech. We should pat ourselves on the back and say, great job, but we should have shot ourselves if we hadn't been the leader. And why do I say that? Because the UK, the city, for hundreds of years has been the leader in financial services innovation. You know, you go back to the coffee houses in the 1600s that then led to the creation of the Lloyds of London Mm. insurance market. You go back to how people used to run around moving bags of what then became checks between one bank to another. That then led us to create checks and the clearing system. You go back to the founding of central banking. This place has an amazing ability to regenerate. This place, the UK and the city has an amazing ability to innovate. And therefore, to my mind, it had all the ingredients to be the leader in fintech. And the fact that we're now in a place where we have some of the world leading companies operating out of the UK is something that we should be immensely proud of, but we shouldn't be complacent. And therefore, looking forward, what is the type of environment that we need to have to ensure that the best fintechs want to start here, but also stay here. You know, the best people are inherently mobile. They choose to deploy themselves and their skills in the UK, and we shouldn't take that for granted. And that is why getting a few things fixed quickly is massively important. Ensuring that we do have a plan about how we reskill the vast numbers of people working in financial services, ensuring we do have a plan for encouraging more STEM graduates, including making those more diverse, Mm -hmm. hugely important. Ensuring that we have a plan that doesn't just revolve around STEM is hugely important. So as an example, we at EY are taking more and more arts graduates, or those from the arts subjects, and as long as they demonstrate the right attributes, we believe we can train them. And it's easy to say if they don't come out of these STEM subjects that they therefore can't have a role in technology or in fintech. I think that's an easy way out. And I think employees need to take more of a role in helping those who may not have come through those backgrounds. And then, of course, you have to start a lot earlier and encouraging those who may not, as we talked about before, may not have thought about careers in fintech to do that. But then going into why is it that the UK is where it is and what do we need to do to ensure we stay there? I think some of the ingredients that are perhaps less talked about but are hugely important about why fintech has been such a success here has been the forward-thinking regulatory environment we've had. The work that the FCA have done around not just the regulatory sandbox but actually talking very publicly about their openness to competition coming from fintech has been hugely important. And now we're obviously exporting some of those ideas to other markets. Mm. The ability to mesh core financial services with newer companies and how increasingly they are working more collaboratively together. In many instances, they compete. In many instances, they work together, I think, has been another 
big ingredient that perhaps gets talked about less when we hear about some of the big companies now talking about getting fintechs plugged into their ecosystem and into their way of working in a very short order is huge. And the more that that can happen, the more we will encourage the sector to grow and prosper. And then, of course, something that will be close to your heart, Sam, access to capital. We hear a lot about the UK perhaps lagging the US. You know, the statistics show it. So whilst we've had a couple of billion invested into fintech over this past Mm -hmm. year, when you do the comparisons back to the money that has been poured into the US, it doesn't really touch the sides. It's good, it's encouraging, and the numbers mm-hmm. are growing. But of course, there are reasons for that, and not least the size of the market. But also, there's lots of reasons why venture capital is different in the US to what it is here. But in the US, you've had lots more founders exit businesses and then use that to recycle back in. Mm-hmm. We clearly in fintech haven't been through one of those cycles yet. There have been some, and on a very encouraging basis, are now investing in other companies to help that go on. But my hope is, as we go into the next cycle, we'll start to see more UK fintech founders starting to invest more in UK fintech, and that will obviously help propel the sector. But just to go back, my summary would be the UK has some inherent ingredients, our openness to talent many centuries of innovation, a willing regulator that means that the sector should prosper. But any market you go to right now seems to think that they are going to be the leader in fintech. So I don't think we have any God-given right to assume that the UK's position now will be the UK's position in a few years' time, which is why it is hugely encouraging that the Chancellor has created this Skills Commission which I'm hopeful would deliver some real tangible outputs. It's hugely encouraging that we've had things like the patient capital review, that the British Business Bank continues to get support and encouragement. And above all, two things which will signify whether the fintech sector will continue to be a success in the UK and hopefully more of a success. First is adoption. You'll be aware that we've run for a while customer adoption survey and the results have been startling. The growth in the number of actual end customers using fintech products has gone up from 15% a few years ago to our most recent, I think, had it above 50%. So 50% Mm -hmm. of people out there are using at least one fintech product. And the second is, which is obviously correlated, the success of our fintech company. So the more we can have flying the flag for UK fintech, the more it will encourage others to do the same. Everything you've said, as you know, I'm in total agreement with. I think there were some really important points just to pick up on there. The arts which I know EY are a huge supporter of, is is critically important. And replacing STEM with STEAM or you know, adding that A in adds to that diversity. Yeah. It's not just about traditionally academic subjects. I think if we want to create that diversity of difference, the arts is essential. You said a really interesting phrase that I've not heard before. The best people are mobile. They choose to be in the best place because they are desired. And you're right, if we don't create that right environment or continue to create that environment, they, they'll move on. And I think that comes back to our access to capital. And we're working together and and with many others very hard on this. We need to make sure that we actually entice and keep, retain our entrepreneurs in London so that they do reinvest in in the infrastructure here. I haven't given a lot of thought to that in the past, so I'm going to take that away as an action. I do hope our weather doesn't put people (laughs) off to remain here. Having just spent some time in LA at Milken Institute, there's definitely an appeal over there. 
but I'm a fiercely patriotic individual. I do believe that London is one of the best cities in the world. We are starting to run out of time. The one thing I haven't done is get to the blue sky stuff. And so I'm going to propose, if it's okay with you, and I know you're a busy man, if we could keep our listeners on the hook by proposing this as part one of maybe two. He doesn't miss a trick. Maybe more. I feel Listeners, like a, Sam does never miss a trick. I feel like yeah. a sleazy film yeah, director yeah, exactly. who's, who's sort of planning the yeah, sequel. Yeah. And if yeah. it's a big hit, maybe we yeah. have to do a, if it nets over a billion dollars or, or if we get over 10,000 <laughs> listeners. If, no, I'd be delighted, Sam. I'd be delighted. You. And one bit that you mentioned keeping entrepreneurs in London, I think part of where we need to move to is making sure that fintech is a UK wide story. And actually, there are some amazing things happening in Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester, Edinburgh, and you're starting to see much more coming through. And in actual fact, I referenced the 2.3 million people who work in financial related professional services, less than a million are in London. It's a really, really good point. And you know, we have already spent a lot of time on devolving our thinking a little bit. And we have the FinTech Envoys in different parts. We have the different organizations like FinTech Scotland and FinTech Wales. I know that new initiatives like the FinTech Alliance are very focused on the different regions. But you're right, it's a bit of a mindset shift that we still have to put a lot of energy behind. Omar, a huge, huge privilege. I know how busy you are. Enormous thanks, not just for today, but for your ongoing support personally and to our firm. We're very grateful to EY and to you. So thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.